How is the process of digitization changing the world? From discussions about intimacy to the surveillance of publics, we will bring you ideas and speakers that question how digital elements are transforming our everyday lives. Welcome to the Global Digital Cultures Podcast. everybody. Um, welcome to the Global Digital Cultures webinar on children and data justice. My name is Erin Paisley, and I'm a current research master's student here at the University of Amsterdam Department of Media Studies. Today, I'm very excited to be hosting this webinar in conversation with Dr. Veronica Barassi, who's joining us from Switzerland, and Dr. Sarah Grimes, who is all the way in Toronto, Canada. Um, as many of us have probably experienced firsthand, children are increasingly using digital technologies. With, with this, there are new opportunities for empowerment and connection, but there are also increasing opportunities for exploitation of this particularly vulnerable group. With the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic, both these challenges and opportunities have been amplified. It has become increasingly vital to have these conversations about the challenges facing children's rights in the digital realm. Specifically, asking questions of what potential interventions can be designed to create data justice and freedom for children in the digital space, as well as what ways that the increased use of technology during the COVID-19 pandemic creates challenges and or opportunities for children online. I'm very excited for how today's conversation is going to add to the larger discussions happening on this topic right now. I'm going to start by introducing Dr. Veronica Barassi, followed by Dr. Sarah Grimes, who will both give a short presentation on their work pertaining to these topics. Uh, following this, both speakers are going to have the opportunity to respond and discuss with one another. So to begin, I will introduce Dr. Veronica Barassi. She is an anthropologist and a professor in media and communication studies in the School of Humanities and Social Sciences at the University of St. Gallen in Switzerland. She is also the chair of media and culture at the Media and Communications Management Institute in St. Gallen and previously was an associate professor in the Department of Media and Communications at Goldsmiths University of London. Her research focuses on the impact of data technologies and artificial intelligence on civic rights and democracy with her most recent works focusing on children's rights. Her newest book, Child Data Citizen, How Technology Companies Are Profiling Us from Birth, came out with MIT Press this past December. This book is the culmination of a much larger international research project, the Data Child Citizen Project, that researched children's data traces in the context of broader processes of citizen surveillance. So please welcome Dr. Veronica Brassi. Thank you. Uh, first of all, I'm delighted to be here. So yes, uh, I, I was, uh, I'm actually looking forward to have a proper conversation because I'm going a bit around uh, talking about the book and also I have like this kind of uh, uh, little introduction that I give that it's always the same. And, uh, and I'm going to give it to you, but I'm going to try to go fast so that we actually have time to uh, really engage with questions and talk about uh, uh, the, talk, the, the issue of data justice uh, for children, which I think it's really at the core of all uh, the debates that we are um, getting into, especially when we talk about the AI and AI futures, okay? So um, just shortly, yes, uh, that was my professional introduction, my, my personal introduction, I, it was the Child Data Citizen project was a very personal project. It came out in a very personal way um, in the sense that I was, um, I was in London and I was um, 
writing my first book, which was uh, more on uh, digital activism and social media. And in my book, I was writing, I was writing about data surveillance and how activists were dealing with data surveillance and the rise of surveillance capitalism and uh, and uh, things like this. And then I had my first daughter. And what happened? It was that I was writing during maternity because this is a very sad reality for women in academia. <laughs> this is a very sad. It shouldn't be emulated because it's very sad. So I was writing during maternity, but then in the afternoon I would go and share, you know, cake and walks with parents. And, uh, and all of a sudden, I started realizing that everybody was producing mass, mass amount of data traces of children. And I was particular, I remember the one particular thing that really hit me uh, and really worried me, uh, which was the fact that I noticed that uh, a lot of, uh, of my co-parents or friends were sharing political data of children online. And I come from, from Italy originally, and I started thinking, Gosh, I mean, these children can be potentially profiled politically from the age of eight months or six months, and uh, what what's happening here, right? So, um, so that's why I, I launched the idea of child data citizen because it was really about uh, the fact that the, we were producing the very first generation of citizens that were being profiled from birth, where we were creating this kind of datafied citizens where. They were losing, we were stripping children of their autonomy to self-construct um, and to self-represent. Uh, and this is not only because of the issue of sharing thing that everybody has been talking about, but really about the data environments, right? The data environments that we were raising these children in, the amount of data traces that were being collected about children. And so, um, and when this happened, um, I started. I started my new project, and, and I started interviewing a lot of the parents and uh, working a lot at UK level. And then my husband has been relocated to LA, so I had this weird life for four years in which I was trying to live in London because I had my tenure at Goldsmith, but then at the same time I was in LA trying to to deal with my family issues. And uh, about what I realized, it was also that I was exposed to two very different. Albeit similar but different data environments. So I was uh, I was dealing with data in schools in the UK, data or, or in nurseries in the UK in preschools, data in preschools in the US, data at the doctor in the US, data at the doctor in the UK. So I started. So that's how the the book came about, really. And it was um, and the research came about. It was this idea of kind of uh, um, studying what was happening around me. Uh, I had a very large autoethnographic component. Um, I was not only satisfied with the autoethnographic component, I, was, I wanted to also a proper ethnography or proper ethnographic uh, analysis. So I've been interviewing parents and working with parents, 50, par 50 parents. And then, and then I was not even satisfied with that because when you, when you think about the identification of children, it's a massive um, topic. And so I decided that I wanted to do also platform analysis of what actually was happening on the platforms. So what, what did companies say? How did they collect the data, uh, the data of children? And so the Child Data Citizen book is pretty much the result of this because the the first two parts of the of the book, the first two chapters are very ethnographic about the transformation of families. The last two chapters are very political. They're about the identified citizens and data justice, so they're very theoretical. And in between, I think this was one of the main findings of the project, I kind of look at different types of children's data, which is uh, social media data, health data, educational data, and what I define home life data. 
And there I actually say, you know, when we talk about data, we often talk about data, personal data as an umbrella term. But that's so wrong because, uh, A, there's so many different and many complex forms of data that have different impacts. You know, like if there's the, the photo of my child eating an ice cream outside, that's, you know, that's okay, right? But if, I could, if, if there is a political photo, that's a different thing. If there is health information, that's a different thing. So in, in each of the chapters, I explore the, the yeah, the type of data and how the type of data is experienced in the family, but also how it's gathered and accumulated by different technology. And um, and this is just, just to conclude, because I want to hear about Sarah's new book. <laughs> I'm just very excited about this. So uh, to conclude that my two real key findings of the child data citizen was first this idea that personal data needed to be broken down and, and we need to have a much more contextual understanding of of data. And the second and the second is that if you actually look at what's happening out there, um, we are having uh, tech companies that have uh, a data monopoly and they have the data technologies to gather data from all the different dimensions of social life. So you have, for instance, you have Google that is uh, gathering data, health data, it's gathering education data, it's gathering uh, social media data, and it's gathering home data. And they have the technologies and the biometric technologies to bring all this data and create unique ID profiles of children across a lifetime. Okay, so this was the real uh, big finding, I think. And uh, and also uh, another big finding was also the, the um, implications of uh, aggregated profiling and being profiled according to your household and what those implications have for uh, social mobility, for uh, discrimination, and uh, yeah, for the possibilities of children to to really um, develop their sense of moral autonomy, right? So, but we can talk about that later and, uh, and this is our main, main presentation. Perfect, thank you so much for that, Veronica. So to move on, I'm going to introduce Dr. Sarah Grimes now. Dr. Grimes is an associate professor in the Faculty of Information, the iSchool at the University of Toronto, where her work focuses on children's digital media cultures, play studies, and critical theories of technology technology with a focus on games. She is also the director of the Knowledge Media Design Institute at the University of Toronto that functions as a cross-disciplinary institute researching the evolving relationship between information, technology, and society. Since November, she has begun hosting the new podcast series, The Critical Technology Podcast, that I was actually listening to earlier today, um, that explores and explains the social, cultural, and political implications of new technology developments. And later this year, her newest book that Veronica mentioned, uh, The Digital Playgrounds, The Hidden Politics of Children's Online Play Spaces, Virtual Worlds, and Connected Games will be released with the University of Toronto Press. So please welcome Dr. Sarah Grimes. Thank you so much, Erin. Everyone can hear me? Yes. All right. So for most of my career, I've conducted research on children's digital play cultures and technologies. So with a focus on video games, as Erin mentioned, virtual worlds, as well as creative tools and practices that kids engage in. Um, and all of this, uh, my focus is always on outside of school, what kids are doing in their leisure time for fun and, and for friendship and social connection. Uh, to date, the bulk of my research has focused on Canada and the United States, um, two countries that are really deeply intertwined, but they're also worlds apart in these really important ways. Very fascinating uh, comparison uh, if you're in the middle of it, even though I know it can seem very similar when you're far away. 
Um, my theoretical approach is a combination of children's studies, science and technology studies, and critical communication studies. So what that means is I'm really interested in the power relations that crop up within these spaces, as well as the different interests, ideals, and agendas that shape how children's digital play spaces are designed, uh, as well as how they're used and how they're regulated or not regulated, how they're promoted and how they're discussed within the broader popular culture, and the different roles that industry, policymakers, parents, kids, and other relevant social groups have in these processes. I think of these various elements as the hidden politics of children's digital play, hence the title of my book, because they often represent and sometimes extend deeply ideological and inherently political stances about childhood itself, how children themselves are envisioned, what capacities they're assumed to have or not have, who's excluded from dominant configurations of the child user, and what types of play are viewed as appropriate or inappropriate. And because they often advance um, either implicitly or overtly a set of political positions about children's rights online by either supporting children's rights or infringing on them or by suppressing them altogether, as is often the case with children's freedom of expression. Um, my work is heavily focused on understanding how these hidden politics operate, under uncovering the underlying power relations and power imbalances that are involved, and identifying alternatives and ways forward that better support children's rights, agency, diversity, and play. And I want to say right off the bat that for the most part, digital play is an incredibly beneficial, rewarding, and meaningful uh, part of children's online experience. And it's a crucial part of any discussion of children's digital citizenship and rights in the digital environment. I argue in my work that play spaces from video games to traditional playgrounds have a unique capacity to function as the child's version of the public sphere by providing a child-centric forum for children to experience and exercise their agency, create shared cultures, as well as confront and negotiate the larger social order and politics of the communities and contexts that they live in. So play itself is recognized as a right of the child, but it's also deeply linked to a range of other rights. I have answers to the questions that Aaron uh, sent us. Aaron, do you want to do you want me to get into that, or will you ask them and, and have uh, Veronica and I um, address them separately? I can ask them in a little bit if you just want to leave that for now. Yeah, I'll just leave it there then. That's a good a good summary for me. Thank you. Okay, so um, I guess one of the the very first questions that I want to move on to then is talking about this in the context of COVID. So pretty broadly, but what the COVID-19 pandemic means for increased use of these technologies um, and uh, anything that relates to increased use, increased creation online, and what that may tell us about um, the effect after the pandemic in a post-pandemic world. So um, either of you are more than welcome to comment um, and discuss that. <laughs> Sarah, do you want to start? Sure. Yeah, I can start. Um, I guess <clears throat> I want to start maybe by uh, identifying um, some problematic trends that are found in the digital play environment. And these are trends that didn't just emerge uh, with COVID times, these are trends that emerged like in the mid and late 1990s, first emerged at that point, and have just kind of continued unaddressed and kind of getting 
increasingly um, uh, deeply intertwined and embedded in how uh, the industry approaches designing spaces for children's play uh, and games and, and how uh, a lot of different governments have approached regulating uh, these spaces or not regulating the spaces. And I'm going to start there because um, I, I feel that the change that's happened over the past year isn't like this huge, like, you know, big, huge departure or disruption of the trends that existed before. It's really just um, a, a heightened awareness of the trends and a continued kind of proliferation of um the relationships that they represent in children's lives across a, a much greater spectrum of children's, you know, life uh, areas like from school to home and, and the time that they spend uh, engaging those relationships. So um, these are like the, the four challenges or problems that I also outline uh, in, in my book. Um, and it comes from the nearly two decades worth of, of uh, research and study that I've put into looking at these spaces and, and how children use them. Um, and, and kind of uh, the, the, these are the great conclusions that, I, that I've come up with. So the four are, there's this profound disconnect between children's privacy as it's articulated and addressed in mainstream digital platforms and like children's own concept and needs for privacy and their needs for autonomous spaces that are determined by them, where they set the rules of play, negotiate peer relationships. The second is there's a lack of support for children's freedom of, of expression online, and it's frequently positioned as being in opposition to children's safety. And, and it's, it's something that's not allowed space for um, in the interests of safety, which um, is defined often in, in quite problematic and, and limited ways. The third is unresolved questions about who owns or has legitimate claim over children's digital content data and shared culture. And this is interestingly has <laughs> has really kind of risen to the forefront as every school uh, in the West that was able to pivot to online started getting kids to just submit all of their creations and, and, and uh, coursework um, in, in these digital formats, often with like absolutely no framework for um, making sure that that copyright uh, would be maintained and, and so on. And the fourth is the potential for exploitation, as Erin mentioned in her intro, that can emerge when mainstream commercial mechanisms and commercialization strategies are applied to games and other spaces designed and targeted to children. And I'd say games kind of like there's a heightened uh, urgency here because they're often not taken seriously uh, by, by adults uh, and, and even by children in terms of like their larger political economic implications. And yet um, there's a lot going on in that space. So as I mentioned, I think the increased use of, of technologies in COVID has exacerbated these issues, which already existed. And, and you can see them kind of like you can plot their history since the earliest days of the internet with like neopets, you know, in the, in the late nineties or, or early zeros where these trends started. And, and it's, it's just kind of like spread more and more on a unregulated in some contexts, such as Canada, uh, regulated to different extents in different contexts, such as in the EU and, and in the UK. Um, but, you know, unaddressed on that larger public public space and the, and the public debates that we have about children's play, which is often focused on kind of like moral panic uh, types of issues. Um, so I, I feel that one of the big dangers is as we move into whatever happens next, 
with all of these technologies brought into all of these different areas um, of children's lives with these issues kind of put on the back burner and, and left to the side because we had to urgently, you know, pivot, um, that those emergency measures will become status quo. And where's the space and the time for us to actually talk about what are the privacy implications of the, the fact that my son's school moved them all into Google Classroom and created Gmail accounts for all of them. Like Google, one of the absolute worst companies for, for data um, security and, and, and infringement of, of privacy rights and, and manipulative uses of data. Like, and there was no opt out of that. So what will happen next? What, what's going to go on? Are they going to review all of the strategies that they implemented in the past year? Or is it easy now to just continue on with the frameworks and, and all of the you know, massive amounts of work, obviously, that went into, into bringing those things in? And when when there was this urgent emergency re- need to just come up with a immediate solution, so I'll I'll leave it at that and, and pass it over to Veronica. Uh, well, actually, I uh, you couldn't have said it better. I think I agree totally with uh, Sarah in terms of uh, uh, the amplification of existing uh, data in, digital and data inequalities. We've seen a radical amplification of that uh, because all our lives just moved online and we were forced to go online. Uh, we actually uh, uh, we have seen an acceleration uh, in the implementation of technologies without public debate, any time whatsoever for critical reflection or negotiation. Uh, I myself had to sign uh, my daughter up to Google as well. Uh, and that was not a pleasant experience, trust me, after years of research. And I actually try to argue my case with the principal of the school, uh, sending her my stuff, saying, you know, we could find alternatives. And, uh, and she was like, yeah, no, but, you know, Google is free and this is what, what it is. If you want to can move her uh, school, you know, like, so you, there is no, and that's exactly what uh, um, Sarah is talking about, this idea of not opt- opting out, which in, in, my, in my book, I, I, I refer to, the, and also in another article, a couple of other articles, I refer to the idea of course digital participation. The idea that we they, we have we are being fed with the belief that uh, we have uh, uh, agency uh, and that we need to uh, read if terms and conditions are transparent uh, we can give informed consent but most of our times our consent is not informed and when it's informed it's definitely not it's it's coerced it's definitely not voluntary because what are you and in my book I do different examples like the example of uh, facial recognition technologies on my baby at Heathrow Air, Airport. You know what was my choice there? Would I have said no? Don't scan my baby's face. You know they, they, there is a real coercion there. Um, so I think that that's very important. So all those aspects I think uh, are to be flagged up when we talk about COVID nineteen. And I think also again, sorry Sarah, I'm, I'm repeating your argument. <laughs> Because you made it uh, so again, the idea of um, we have been uh, we have uh, um, embraced emergency technologies, emergency technological solution, but we don't really have uh, a turn off button. We don't know when this technology is around. So all that I think is very important uh, to add to that debate, which I think it's uh, really maps what are the main problems. I would add uh, another couple of things. One is the uh, increased amount of data collected. Uh, a lot of the activities of children, and I'm thinking about play here as well, which uh, obviously I don't know much about because that was not the focus of my research. But a lot of the activities of, of, of uh, children now are being datafied because they can't go out. 
because that. So the majority of their interactions are being datafied. Um, on top of that, uh, being at home all the time implies that they are constantly, um, again, exposed to what I um, what I identify in my work as those technologies like Alexa or like uh, many different types of technologies. They are not designed or targeted at children. And because they're not designed and targeted at children, they do not have to abide to COPPA. And this is the real issue. Children are constantly interacting with children, with technologies that do not have to abide to any child privacy regulation, right? Um, and again, and, and collect uh, large amounts of their personal data, uh, also uh, hyper-contextual data. They bring this data together with their parents because everybody's much more closed at home. Everybody's much more interconnected. So all those uh, processes that I... Um, and that I explore in my in my book uh, uh, are actually uh, being amplified. And to add to that, I'm, at the moment, I've, I've been asked to write a book in Italian for the first time in my life, which is a bit of a challenge because I've never written in Italian. But it's a really, uh, but, but I'm loving it, actually. But it's basically a remake of my, I had so much data from the Child Data Citizen Project, and I wanted to add something more about the pandemic and also about the changes in AI technologies of the last year, because there's been kind of significant changes around us, uh, especially when you think about health tracking or many other things. And um, and I'm, uh, I, with the provisional title of Generation Data, but my, my editors don't like it. But, uh, but I was writing it precisely about this, about how the pandemic has just made everything uh, much more amplified with critical implications uh, for our society. But having said this, there are also some really positive uh, aspects of this because this exposure to technology has also uh, allowed for greater critical thinking. And a good news is, for instance, that the Italian government, uh, I think it was like one month ago, they, um, they took off the list of suggested online platform for teaching Google. Uh, saying that actually it uh, it uh, goes against uh, um, privacy uh, and the privacy regulations, and so th- these steps are very important. But then we have other steps, which are actually the monopoly of of of, of uh, big tech giants. Moves like Google saying we're not tracking you, <laughs> or we are about privacy. We have we have like the craziness going on out there at the moment, and uh, and in this craziness, of what we also have. Uh, is uh, this amounts of data that are just being given given away, and that it's gonna and that is gonna very be much linked to our freedom to move, our freedom to access things. Because with COVID, we also have that. So um, I think all these things are coming together in a very uh, problematic uh, um, environment. I think. Thank you. Yes, I think one thing that's really interesting that both of you brought up was that. Um, the, the idea that it's amplifying these existing issues um, and also that it sounds like it's amplifying the diverse role of different types of actors. I know you talked about even the principal of your child's school and the role that they have in deciding about these technologies. Obviously, the parents' role, um, not just limited to these big technology companies, but that everybody has these different types of roles and things that they can do. And I wonder if um, both of you could maybe expand a bit more on the different potential interventions that can be designed to create data justice and freedom for children in this digital space and also not just limited um, to uh, policies and things like that, obviously, but also from the educator and the parent's perspective, what interventions we can do um, today to address these things. So 
Yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, um, I was part of a, a large uh, global um, initiative led by Sonia Livingston uh, in the past couple of years, that's sort of culminating this month in the release of a new general comment on children's rights in the digital environment uh, for the UN. And um, I did the children's consultation in Canada. It was just like a small, I was a, I was a happy collaborator on, on their amazing project. Um, but one of the things that came out of that um, study, the children's consultation um, was like the, the children themselves really want businesses to do better, um, to respect and protect and remedy their rights. Uh, and, and they had, you know, all of this, this oscillating like, love of so many different technologies and opportunities that technologies bring, and then like a profound mistrust of, of companies and, and what companies were doing with their data and, and, and their, their aspirations, like in terms of how things could get better, really focused on, on businesses. So I want to start there. Um, but I also don't think that businesses like the, the internet companies um, can really shoulder this burden on their own. Um, they've been left to their own devices for a while and they haven't like done superbly with that. Um, so even if they're mandated and, you know, they, they negotiate to, to take on a, a larger role, they, they should do that, but I don't think they can do it alone. I think that governments do need to, to work with them and to help. That said, I don't think that those should be the only uh, parties at the table. And what came out of the general comment, as, as everyone will see uh, when it's released later this month, is like really kind of in, in the consultation with, with the experts and, and different states around the world was like this, this really kind of... Um, like many, many different types of people identifying the need for collaboration across sectors on tackling these issues in, in a serious way that's informed, that considers the different interests. And I, I know that this is often the, the goal of, you know, like a, a policy uh, call for public uh, consultation or, or whatever, um, but it's it's rarely actually implemented. It's it's often so top down, or it's something that policymakers and industry are involved with, and they might have like a town hall or or something. So to try to actually reimagine what that looks like, like how do we create standards and guidelines and and policy that's like where children themselves are involved where teachers and educators are actually involved where where parents and, and advocates and other stakeholders are involved so one example that I that I would point to is um, again led by Sonia Livingston. I'm, I'm a total Sonia Livingston fangirl. Um, her work is amazing. But the Digital Futures Commission uh, that she's leading with the Five Rights Foundation out of the UK is is really trying to do this, and it's really going to be interesting to see how that all comes about and and what they end up doing. So like to bring together like the innovators, the people who are designing the technologies with the policymakers and the academics and, and children and educators and uh, play workers and just all of these different people that are considered important because they are extremely important. They're, they're on the ground uh, of these issues. Um, so that's, that's what I think we need to do. Like we need to rethink 
our whole approach um, when it comes to how we how we go about ensuring that kids' rights are supported in these spaces. And, and we need to provide way more support to industry. And, and that's what it is. It might be seen in an, as, a, as an antagonistic attack. It's not at all. They need support and they need help to, to help them figure out how to do this properly. That's what I think. Thank you for that. So I personally, I see um, the issue of data, data justice, like I admire Sonia's work and Sarah's work, and they are actually, I think it's that, you know, like it's a very important perspective. And I think that that's one of the big, uh, not limitation, but change of perspective that I try to do with the Child Data Citizen Project, because uh, uh, paradoxically, um, at the moment, we have a lot of important and crucial, crucial work on children's agency and the importance of getting children involved uh, in processes of decision making, uh, of uh, having children as agents in our society and not just as uh, as uh, future citizens or something like. And this is very much in uh, the work of Sonia. Uh, and I think... Uh, Part uh, um, and I, I I admire and I find that work extraordinarily fascinating. Uh, my, my work was completely different in the sense, and I say this also in my in my introduction that I part, um, paradoxically I do exactly what current research is showing that we shouldn't be doing, which is uh, uh, stripping children of their agency. I didn't talk to children. I didn't work with children. Uh, but my, and I did that out of a clear. Uh, research question in mind because I wanted to show how in a context of Western society where um, children have always been stripped from their their agency, how the development of data technologies and AI solutions is further intensifying these processes of uh, of, uh, datafication and stripping children of their moral autonomy and, uh, and choice, right? So, so I admire massively what uh, uh, the the work in the UK has been doing and done, and I admire massively those who herald a plan for just uh, data justice that includes children. Uh, and I think that uh, perspective is crucial uh, in this debate. Um, my perspective is a little bit uh, comes from a different pers- uh, idea, which is uh, um, in I. First of all, we have to understand what data justice is for children. What does it mean? What, what, what does it mean that we talk about data justice for children, right? So one of the key issues that I discuss with, with reference with uh, um, data justice, is the question of uh, household profiling. Now, the majority of uh, uh, big tech are really jumping into new patents and new technologies to profile households. And, uh, and, and, the, and the very practice of profiling, it is uh, not about profiling you on the basis of your individual behavior, because that's what people tell you. But in actual fact, it's profiling you on the basis of the group you belong or the family you belong or what people around you do, right? So the majority of data arms and questions about data inequality that we are actually seeing are, uh, are emerging precisely because uh, Profiling is about not profiling the individual, but profiling the context and the family and the um, and the yeah the background. Now, obviously, historically, this is not there is nothing new under the sun. There is really nothing new under the sun. We've always been profiled on the basis of our accents, on the basis of our families, on the basis of our ethnicity, the basis of our religion, and uh, and and the more you know, and a lot of other aspects. So we both been profiling for the groups that we came from and from the uh, groups that we belonged. Uh, So there's nothing new in that. 
But what is new is the fact that this profiling operates a lot behind the shadows. Uh, it is often uh, depicted as if it's an objective analysis of what you need. Think about uh, the use of technologies for personalized education. They gather a lot of data about the ethnicity, about the class, about, to target children with specific personalized content. And here you're literally locking people into stereotypes because uh, you're creating an idea about what they are, then you're feeding them content that you think they want. And then uh, they, they don't, have, especially in the, in the context like education, this is awful. If I had been fed only the content that they thought that I was interested in, trust me, it wouldn't be here. <laughs> I certainly would have done any math, right? So this is something that, um, that we need to understand. It is that the, the data justice needs to be unpacked. Uh, it's not only about uh, data privacy or protecting data privacy. Um, and, uh, and it's not only about guaranteeing children's access to uh, decision-making, um, which is an important dimension. But it is also about really unpicking what's happening in the uh, in, in the in the process of profiling, and uh, in uh, in my book, I actually come up with three I think three steps uh, that at society level we I think and policy level we need to make for uh, for guaranteeing better data justice or at least for trying starting to find a solution. The first one is that we have to uh, make household profiling illegal. I believe, I strongly believe that all data that is being collected of my children from my Facebook account shouldn't be Facebook data. I gave the consent. They didn't give the consent. They're gathering data out of uh, an account that, that had, and out of a technology that doesn't follow COPPA, doesn't follow any of the child, child children provision. This is a very simple step. It's not a massive request, right? It's just saying if Alexa is gathering children's data, that data is automatically deleted. It's not used to profile. It's not used to understand a little bit more about the family. Of course, this is not what's happening. Facebook in 2017 requested a patent for household profiling where they could identify your the people that live in your household through the uh, analysis of uh, faces. So obviously companies, Google, the family pack or whatever, family, what is called family check? What is a family group? I don't remember it. But there is, all the companies are doing, uh, Amazon is, house, it's all about household, household profiling. Add your teenagers and your children and maybe your dog, you know? So it's all this. So this should be, I think it should be one important thing that we should all fight against and that we should uh, try to change. Um, the second important thing is really to um, push forward the, that idea that most of the uh, the participation and digital participation uh, within families is not voluntary. So that data regulations and policymakers have to be aware that just focusing on individual choice and transparency is not going to be good enough. So, and this is an important step, an important debate that we should uh, uh, articulate more in the public debate, uh, in the public domain. And the third one, uh, again, is uh, is that we need uh, a more precise governmental effort against data brokers. Data broking of children's data should be illegal. It's not, again, but in my perspective, it's not that uh, dip, it's not that difficult. You know, you don't broke data, your children's data. You don't, you don't, uh, you 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 shouldn't have educational data broker companies. They shouldn't be acting in the shadows, right? So, um, and I think that until we start with this solutions that are really governmental and political solutions, I I, I don't see the issue of uh, of data justice for children really being addressed. So 
Perfect. Thank you. Thank you both for sharing all of um, those uh, exciting, also challenging opportunities to address these issues. Um, so I'm going to actually transition to a question from Monica that was put in the comments now, um, <clears throat> who asks, I was wondering if you could reflect on how the data and right, rights issues discussed have played from locations around the world. Do you see that in some locations, there is more chance for demanding platforms or governments to take action with these issues? Or have you encountered any elements relevant from non-Western contexts? I'm actually really um, feeling optimistic about this right now. As Veronica pointed out, um, there's like this really heightened awareness among like the people, not just the academics, but the people uh, of like the problems of, of technology. Um, you know, Zoom cameras being left on and, and teachers seeing into your house and like the there was such a confrontation uh, of, of these like small, like tense events. Then with the general comment coming out and I, I hope it's a big deal. Like we all think it's a huge deal and I, I hope it is. And, and it's an opportunity to make it a big deal and, and put it back on the agenda and to make those connections explicit, you know, like until now, no position had been taken about how, children's rights apply in this, in this context. Now there's a position taken with like really clear directives to governments around the world on like what they need to be doing and, and to companies as well. So there's this moment I think that, that like we can take advantage of right now because it's still fresh in people's minds. People are still embarrassed from the time they yelled at their child in front of the teacher by accident, not knowing the mic was on, you know, like these things are still top topical. Uh, and then there's this thing happening uh, at, a, at the, at the world level. Um, you know, where are they most likely to take issue? I think the UK is doing a lot. Um, uh, and um, also China, um, we have, uh, I have a project uh, that I'm just starting up this summer looking at uh, game regulation and how that's addressed in different countries. And China has a, a number of uh, really interesting examples, you know, ones to avoid and, and ones to, to maybe look into, uh, of course. Um, but uh, I, I feel like we might be on the cusp of, of a moment where different people in different countries can, can push for action. But I'm I'm feeling that way. I have I have to feel that way after uh, working on this project for so long. Veronica, how do you feel? Well, uh, going to the question of context, I feel yes. I feel that there is uh, um, most of the debates are context sensitive uh, and context. And I, I mind you, like uh, at the moment, I'm really interested in finding out uh, what's happening here in Switzerland because I moved to Switzerland uh, on the fourth of March last year, so right in the middle of the pandemic. And um, and it's very it's very interesting because uh, uh, like I'm following one for instance one uh, one um, discovery that here there's no real uh, child data protection, but because the Swiss believe uh, as far as I understand that I'm not uh, because I, I don't have any research on this, but uh, but they 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 seem to believe that children are like uh, uh, normal citizens. And so they don't need to be specially protected. And, and if you look at Swiss society um, in this framework, it's incredible. Like here, you, you have a real cultural crash. Like I have, you see four-year-olds going to school on their own. 
and they're just like, you know, stopping and looking at you and then going through. So there is a real sense of autonomy of the child and, and recognition of autonomy of the child, which I haven't found in any other culture I, uh, I have lived. Um, and so, again, if you think about that and you think about data rights, you're thinking, oh, wow, this is crazy. Uh, like really crazy, right? So, but also, if you think about data privacy in Italy, and there is an overprotection on children. And there comes a lot from the Catholic, Italian, overprotective uh, uh, approach to families. There's nothing to be said. You know, like, and that's why, like, uh, in Italy at the moment, a lot of people are really reacting to my book because of that. Because I think because it talks directly to a cultural thing. Unfortunately, I, I do not have first-hand experience of contexts that are non-Western. And uh, although I've been following a lot uh, news on uh, um, on AI developments and especially facial classification and emotional classification that is going on in China, but there are more news so from from Western newspapers. So I meant that, so with all that limits uh, limitation that comes from that. And but uh, so whether I'm positive of where we are at, I think to be honest, I we are still in terms of data protection. We're really at in in a very um, interesting time because precisely for what uh, Sarah is saying, there is a growing awareness from the from people because we we see this surveillance every day. We ex, you know we we are constantly uh, dealing and negotiating with this process of surveillance. At the same time, what I'm witnessing is a, a real step up in an aggressive way by uh, tech companies and uh, and governments and political exchanges. So for instance, uh, the deal between Palantir and the NHS, guys, that's massive. You know, that's what you're talking about. Uh, you're talking about things that they, they sound, uh, for those who understand a little bit of these things, they sound pretty dystopian, right? So, um, so to get back to whether I am positive or not, <laughs> I don't know. I have, I like, it's funny because like I, I teach a course on uh, big data and artificial intelligence and another one on data cultures, right? And and I have students that are so, super engaged and, but they, they, they look so depressed during the course. And then, so I always try and say, but there is a lot of change out there. Look at this and look at that. So I always try to go back to go to be very positive, to to avoid them being too oppressed and depressed. In my day-to-day life, it's one day I'm up, one day I'm down. Because like it's and this is this is truth. Like uh, I I can't, I'm seeing so many very, very bad moves from the tech company, especially like when you talk about um contact tracing app, uh, uh, COVID vaccines, uh, uh, and other really important stuff in the health sector. Uh, yeah, I am. Oh, I can't share your enthusiasm that much, Sarah, but yeah. Okay, well, thank you. Um, so we have time probably for uh, one more question. And there's a question directed to Sarah. Um, so Lonica says, if I understand you well, games can carry certain assumptions about children's rights and ascribe digital rights to them. I'm interested to hear more about this and maybe an example and whether this goes beyond privacy. Oh, thank you for that question. Um, yeah, there, there's a, a number of different assumptions that are made about kids in, in kids' game designs uh, and how they're managed or moderated, you know, and, and what rules are put into play. Uh, definitely goes beyond privacy. Uh, the one that's like the easiest to understand is freedom of expression. 
which is often the first thing taken out or, you know, not like kept out of a game when kids are going to be playing it. Um, and that that's a complicated, there's complicated reasons for that. Um, and here, I, I, not all games are social and not all games are connected, obviously. Um, and so I should have specified uh, connected games and, and games where uh, the player will encounter other players. Um, because of, of some regulatory, you know, specifics to kids uh, that make it easier to just avoid letting kids talk rather than make sure that the space abides by regulation. And then like in a, in a kind of like looser sort of corporate image branding way of trying to present the space as safe and thinking that the only way to do that is to really lock down what kids say to each other because kids are also sometimes mean to each other, right? Like, it, and, and they troll each other and bully each other. And so if you want to have a game that doesn't have any of that, the easiest thing to do is to like, just, you know, put huge filters on your chat or just not have chat at all. But kids get a lot out of talking to each other when they're playing together. And it's, it's, First of all, this default solution that so many companies and, and also not companies, not, not for profits that are making spaces for kids play go to of like, well, we'll just take out the communication. It just offloads the, the issue. It, it makes the place less constructive, less fun, less everything, less social for the kids themselves. They, they do often, you know, some kids will play it anyway. And then other kids will be like, well, I'm going to go play Fortnite then, because even though it's not for me, cause I'm eight, um, I can talk to my friends in that space and, and it's a lot of fun and I'll, I'll just kind of manage when, when I encounter something, you know, awful that someone says to me, which almost, you know, that, that happens. So it's this default of not having any consideration for children's freedom of expression. And can you imagine game designers making the same choice with like adults or teen players? Like, well, we don't want to have to moderate it. So let's just not let them talk. It's, it's a ridiculous idea at this stage. Games are so social. The most popular games are the social games. Um, and yet that still is like this huge, huge um, tendency uh, among children's game designers. Thank you for that. Perfect. So before I wrap things up for today, I just want to give Sarah and Veronica, both of you, an opportunity. If there's any closing remarks you want to say um, or comments, then you're more than welcome to. Not much, apart from thank you. This was very enjoyable. And uh, yeah, I loved hearing about Sarah's uh, work. And uh, yeah, there's a lot of work to be done. And actually, to be honest, I think that, that that's something that uh, that is emerging quite clearly. Uh, and I think Sonia Levinson is a great example of this. Like there is a lot of work uh, within academia that can be done and that uh, to change things, right? So, um, and yeah, so that that's my only positive remark after the negative sides of things so yeah yeah and thank you so much for having me and veronica it was so great to to get a chance to chat with you i love your book so much and uh I think well, we're it's seeing it's us soon aren't we <laughs> Yeah. 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 It, it's such an important, uh, it brings the conversation into such a, an important area and I'm, I'm just so glad it's, I'm glad it's out there. 
Perfect. Well, I also want to thank both of you for taking the time to be here and be in conversation, um, as well as uh, the Global Digital Cultures Initiative at the University of Amsterdam for hosting this webinar. There's going to be more events in the series, as well as this recording will be available on the GDC website. Um, and that is all that I have for you today. So thank you, everyone, for being with us as well.